Hey listeners, I'm Pastor Brian Dwyer, and you're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast on a Tuesday. Pastor Ross Anderson joins me for today's topic. And remember, you can find resources to have this conversation with your family, small group, or mentor. Find it all at PursueGod.org. Well, Ross, there was some huge news this week when the Southern Baptist Convention voted to kick out Saddleback Church, and not just Saddleback, there's other churches involved, but of course, Rick Warren's church, Purpose Driven Life author, he's not the senior pastor there anymore, um, recently stepped down and, and uh, gave over leadership to another pastor, and and I don't know if that's why, but w- for whatever reason, finally now they've made this decision, and the reason is because of this controversy over women pastors. So in this episode, I know that our listeners probably are trying to make sense of this, why why is this such a big deal, especially in a cult, the culture that we live in today? Why can't women be pastors? And we're going to talk about this from a biblical perspective, but maybe, Ross, it'd be good for us to start with a couple of words that people may or may not be familiar with. One is egalitarian, the other one is complementarian. Just to give a, our listeners a little bit more insight into the Southern Baptist situation, uh, the Southern Baptists have historically said that women can't be pastors, and uh, that's in their documentation and so forth. But some Southern Baptists are independent, and it's sort of an association that's not top-down driven. And so some churches have done it. And so basically the, the denomination said, we, we can't be in fellowship with a, a church that doesn't you know agree with our standards. And so actually, they, they actually kicked out Saddleback Church and others some, uh, last year, and this was a, an appeal on the part of these two churches, in particular Saddleback. So Rick Warren is not the senior pastor there anymore, and the, the new guy they brought in, his wife is listed as a, a, a pastor. He and his wife are listed as a pastor, and then they have ordained other, other women. So that's the, that's the larger picture. It's something that it's not unique to Southern Baptists, but it's uh, really an issue that is focused on in the whole evangelical world these days. So these are, and it revolves around uh, the, the two perspectives that you mentioned, uh, egalitarian and complementarian. Egalitarian, as it, the name suggests, believe that men and women are equal in their ability to lead or to have any role in the life of the church. Now, it's a little bit of a confusing terminology because the complementarians would believe that men and women are equal in their salvation, equal before God, but but they would believe that, complementarians believe that they have two complementary roles, the roles that complement each other. In other words, men and women have different roles, same equality, but different expressions um, in the life of the church. And the role of pastoral leadership is restricted uh, to men. And so those are, that's in a summary, that's kind of the, where the two positions lie. And I, and I want to say, even before we get into all the scripture, all the, we'll, we'll be queuing up some scripture that listeners will want to make sure to study and process. But I want to just at the very outset say that Andy Wood, who's the new senior pastor, I've interacted with him personally. Tracy and I have had had lunch with he and his wife Stacy. They're wonderful people. They love Jesus. They 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 believe in the Bible. 
So I think it's really important whenever we talk about things like this is that we're not uh, vilifying uh, the other perspective. So Ross, we're coming at this from a complementarian perspective and we'll defend why we, why we land there. But I think people who come from a different perspective, I, you know, we need to be gracious on these things. But I think really for everybody, wherever you're coming from or whatever kind of a church you're a part of, I think it's important for us to really let scripture speak to the issue and, and not make our decisions based on our culture, we shouldn't let our culture dominate our view of this. We should really honestly look at Scripture and say, God, I want, I want you to tell me how to run my church. I want, I want you to convince me. Um, I don't want my culture to convince me. That's really the approach that we take. I think we're all going to stand before God someday, especially leaders in churches. So if you're talking through this topic with your pastoral team or you know, your, your overseers at your church, which we've done many, many times, and we will continue to do. Every new generation is going to have to wrestle with this. I think it's really important to start with kind of a high view of Scripture and not just um, relegating Scripture to this secondary place, and we let, we let culture dominate. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And because honestly, church culture has been dominated by men for centuries and not always to the benefit of women and not always in a way that treats women um, appropriately the way the Bible treats women and, and so we don't but we don't want to you know go too far the other way we don't want we want to find that biblical that biblical sweet spot where which maybe has not always been the case in you know in in our culture, I mean, I was reading a book recently about the, the the rise of the women's movement. Women could not vote, could not own property, et cetera. And, and, so, and those things are not biblical. They're cultural. But there is a biblical core here that we, we want to stick with and not go culturally, not go for or against something just, just because it's the way people are generally thinking. So let's look at the Scripture and see what the Bible has to say. Yeah, you know, we, I want to actually start with the what a, kind of a good summary position of the Baptists on this. This is a good complementarian summary position. We'll put a link to where this comes from in their documentation. Here's what they say. We don't know how to say this more strongly. Women and men are of equal value, right? So they want to say right off the bat, well, this is actually the summary of this document that you can find the link for. But here's what they say. However, because Scripture speaks specifically to the role of pastor— Churches are under a moral imperative to be guided by that teaching rather than the shifting opinions of human cultures. I think that's really a good sort of summary of where they're coming from is we know this is hard. They're not saying Saddleback is, you know, like evil. They're just saying we want to stand with the Bible instead of the shifting opinions of human cultures. So there's this idea that, that if we keep moving this line, then we're going we're gonna to keep moving it in other areas as well. And, and so let's stand for God's Word. And so let's look at God's Word, Ross. And I think the first thing we need to address is this connection between the, what the, the biblical word elder and the word that we would use today. We, of course, use the word elder as well, but we also use the word pastor. So let's make the connection between those two words. Yeah, I think this is an important place to start the conversation because we use, in our culture today, we use the words pastor, elder, maybe somewhat 
differently than the New Testament used those words. Because we have this sort of culture, Christian culture, that's given pastors a certain meaning. But in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, rather, in the early church, it speaks about elders, it speaks about overseers, and it speaks about pastors or shepherds. And it, and it treats those words interchangeably. And so when we look at a passage that says, this, is, this applies to overseers, then we, we know we understand it also applies to pastors. That this applies to elders, we understand it also applies to pastors. So we see that, in that in interchangeability or that equivalence in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul is visiting, meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. They're identified as the elders in verse 17. So in verse 28, he says, guard yourselves and God's people, feed and shepherd God's flock, his church purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. And so there's a clear connection. He says, elders are supposed to feed and shepherd God's flock. The word pastor is simply the Latin way of saying the word shepherd. And, and so um, it says they're appointed as leaders, and, and in the, this translation, the word that's translated leader is the same word that's translated overseer in other passages. We'll look at some of those passages. So when you see a pastor, overseer, and elder, he's really talking to one group of people who have you know these different... Uh, roles that are related to the titles they have. So I just wanted to to make sure we understand that uh, going into the conversation. So we say, well, that's not talking about pastors. That's talking about overseers. Well, they're, they're one and the same thing. Yeah, because the issue, and this is one of the things that we really emphasize when we when we think about this in our church. The issue is authority. The issue is spiritual authority spiritual shepherding authority. So elder, overseer, pastor, it's all the same concept. It's the concept of exercising spiritual authority in the in the context of a local congregation. So for example, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, and I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. So I guess we could add one more word that some churches, probably a a word that most churches wouldn't use, but apostle. Some churches might even use that word. We don't. But all of these words really speak to spiritual authority, spiritual leadership. and, And then that's really what sets us up for 1 Timothy 3, which is where we draw the connection now. Like, is there something gender specific about being an elder slash overseer slash pastor? Right. And as as we look at First Timothy three, I think in our cultural understanding, we tend to say pastors. Oh, those are the people that are hired. It's a vocational ministry. But elders, those are the lay person. You know, those are the men who are volunteers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've created this distinction in our culture that doesn't exist in the New Testament. And yes, some elders in the New Testament were paid for their services, but but they didn't stop being elders, or, or the elders who aren't paid are still viewed as pastors uh, because they're shepherds of the flock. So in our, con- in our context, we need to sort of take away the capital P at the beginning of pastor 
and, and realize that, hey, all of our elders, all of our overseers, they are pastors, and it's not just the people who are on vocationally that are, that are the ones who are called pastors in the New Testament. So we have to make, kind of make that break in our thinking about this issue. Yeah, and even before we get into the next text, Ross, what about are we saying that are we saying that all leaders in the church are elders or overseers? Like every leadership position is an elder slash overseer position. Like for example, kids ministry, leading teaching in kids church or or being on a worship team. Are we talking about leadership in general, or, or is there something specific we're talking about when we're using the word elder slash overseer slash pastor? Yeah, it's something very specific that the elders um, of Ephesus were brought before Paul. And we'll look when we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, we'll see what the nature of that position is, that role is. So it, it's a you use, you use the concept of authority, and so I think that's a great idea because these are the individuals who have authority in a local church, who have authority over the direction, who are jointly together. There's, and the Bible also talks about a plurality of these. It's not never one person individually, but the, the plurality of these individuals have an, a sense of this is what God wants us as a local congregation to be and to do. And, and uh, there's roles of, say, discipline, and there's, there's roles of uh, comfort and counsel, but it's also a sense of direction. And so that, that author- not everybody has, not every leader in the, in, the, in the church even today has authority that applies to the entire congregation. Yeah, so we're not talking about leadership in general. We're not saying that, that any leadership position at all in your church has to be a man, we're we're talking about this specific this specific calling of elder slash overseer slash pastor, um, which is authoritative in the church, and and so this is finally what brings us to some text that I think people need to wrestle with. Churches need to wrestle with, individuals need to wrestle with, and one of the one of the texts is First Timothy three one and two. It says this: Paul writes this to Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an overseer, so there's the word in that tech, in that context, he desires an honorable position. So an overseer must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. Okay, let's stop right there, Ross. Explain this to us. So this is Paul writing to Timothy, and he's assigning Timothy to set up leaders in the local congregations where, where Timothy is serving. And so these are his instructions. Look for this kind of person to be one of those key um, spiritual leaders in the life of the church. He says, you know, there's an overseer. Again, and there was sort of uh, elders or pastors, overseers. It's great for a person to aspire for that position. But he says, this individual, his life has to be above reproach. And there's a lot of other qualities that are listed after verse 2. But he says, particularly, he must be faithful to his wife. And literally, in, the, in Paul's language, the Greek language of the time, the phrase is translated literally a one-woman man, a husband of one wife, which in Greek would be a one-woman man. And so it uses the word anair there, which is a Greek word for man. And so it makes it pretty clear that you know, this is a, a position for, 
for male individuals. Now, all of the other things that come later, a life above reproach, self-control, able to teach, gentle, not quarrelsome, essentially, all that stuff, those are quality, character qualities that aren't gender-driven, but this particular one, is it specifically says that there's a gender associated with this role. Okay, and then Titus 1.6 similarly says, an elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife. So Ross, again, right here, if you're, if you're thinking of this just very literally, like at face value, it seems like this is saying that an overseer or an elder or a pastor should be a man. But how would an egalitarian then counter with this? Like, what would an egalitarian say about 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1? Well, I think that the person who's coming from that perspective would argue that this is a reflection of the culture of the times, that, that Paul was writing to Timothy and to Titus about the reality that it was at the time, that you wouldn't have, a woman would not have had that role in any aspect of society. And so they're saying that, oh, this is obvious based on our culture that, that leaders with authority, they're men, period. Nobody would have thought about, oh, what about women? Or, oh, maybe a woman should do this. In other words, it's, a, it's an argument from the culture of the time that says that what God says there through the Apostle Paul has to be understood in light of you know, the limitations of that particular very patriarchal culture. So one of the things that even as we've wrestled through this, Ross, is, as you mentioned, these other qualifications, I think it's important to approach this biblically as a church and say, look, we shouldn't take this lightly, appointing an overseer, an elder, a pastor. In fact, in another place in in the context of these verses, it says, don't be in a hurry to appoint somebody to a position of authority. This is something that you should take very seriously. And I, you know, I would give a challenge to complementarians out there listening to this who are saying, yeah, that's right. We, you know, it should only, if you're gonna have a high view of the Bible, you should only have men in these positions in your church. But I would challenge complementarians to look at the rest of the list as well and to be serious about the rest of the list, because I think probably there are a lot of churches that would disallow women from these roles but they're they're in violation of scripture with some of these other things as well, right? Uh, for example, it, it, he says uh, that pastors slash elders overseers should not love money. Well, in America, you have pastors who love money. Period. So, um, yeah. So there's there's it's a profile of the ideal, and part of that ideal is a great character ability to manage your household. But part of the ideal, I think, is transcultural, um, and that is that there's some kind of way that, for some reason, God says we want to use men to provide leadership um, at, the, at the highest level. Okay, so, so, so far we've looked at some passages, again, that people should write down and study on their own, 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, but probably the most controversial of all these texts in, in the Pauline epistles is 
First Timothy 2. So we, we just read what it said about First Timothy 3, about if you aspire to be an overseer and you should be a, a one-woman man, etc. But if we back up to chapter 2, Ross, this is where I think probably some people in our culture today, even some of our listeners who love Jesus, they read their Bible, they trust in Jesus, but they read these verses and they these verses might really, I don't know, strike them as wrong. These verses might strike them as um, out of place. They they might have a hard time understanding these verses. So let's spend some time on 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12. And here's what it says. And then, Ross, I want you to try to explain this, especially to our young listeners who are trying to make sense of this. It says, women should learn quietly and submissively. Again, some people, men and women listening to this might bristle at that. Women should learn quietly and submissively, verse 11. Verse 12 says this, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. So there it is again. And then verse 13 says, for God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. Let's spend some time on this because it seems to be talking about the role of women in church, and it, it, you know, some people might say it's just women should never talk in church. Like women should just sit there and listen, and have no, absolutely no role in leadership or anything. Help us understand this, Ross. Well, I think one thing that is helpful to begin with is to notice that this passage is closely connected in Paul's argument to what we just read in First Timothy three. And so from talking about the role of authority and teaching in the life of the church, he immediately then, after he makes this argument, he immediately then says, well, who can lead in the church? And here's the kind of person that should be able to lead. And so I, I've understood this to be referring to not just, not just generally women need to you know, shut up and, and, and you know, listen and whatever, but I, but I've always understood this in the light of that connection that this is really specifically talking about the authoritative leadership role, um, because he immediately moves in to, on to talk about you know the qualities um, that are associated with overseers, and so I think that's what, how we understand verse twelve, where he says, "I don't let women teach men or have authority over them," and I don't think it means that women can't teach men ever. But it's that role, that ultimate teaching authority role that's vested in the the person who's a spiritual leader over the congregation. So in, in chapter 3, he says that overseers need to be able to teach. And so that, that that's, again, a reflection of what's going on here, I believe. So in other words, I'm arguing for a more restrictive application of 1 Timothy 2, that it's really not just about women in general in church, but it's really about the, this particular leadership role that 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 he's reinforcing why that this leadership role is restricted to men and it's not just cultural because Paul uses an argument from scripture he uses an argument from the order of creation this is the way things were made that Adam was made first then Eve was made second you know there's a lot going on in the relationship between Adam and Eve and Adam didn't always you know live up to his leadership role there he really blew it with Eve's temptation, but he's saying that this is the, this is the way God created the world to work, that he made men first and he made women as a complement to the, to the man or as a, a suitable helper, as it says in, back in Genesis. And so, again, it's not just culture because it's rooted in the way God made the created order. 
Yeah, I love what Timothy Keller says about this passage as he had to wrestle with this in his pastoral ministry. You know, of course, on the East Coast, so very liberal context. And and one of the things that, that he said I would really challenge our listeners to consider, he said, you can't just dismiss this. You can't, you can't say that this doesn't mean anything. This has to mean something. You, you can't just throw it out. And so the real question is, what exactly does this mean? Now, an egalitarian might say, and some have argued like this, they would say, look, the, the hard, the, the difficult, obscure verses should be interpreted with all of Scripture. That's a good hermeneutical principle is, is to, to take the challenging verses and not formulate huge doctrinal positions uh, on, on obscure verses. But so the question is, is this an obscure verse? Of course, the complementarian would say, no, like you said, it's in the context of chapter three and these other verses we've already looked at. This isn't, we would say that this isn't an obscure verse. So we have to say then, what, what is this talking about? And I would, I would argue that, like you said, Ross, I would argue that this is talking about authority, exercising authority in the context of a local church. That's how we apply this. We say it, is, it has to be saying something, and it's speaking to this, th- this desire of God from the order of creation to say men should be, men should take the responsibility. This is how I like this. It's not the privilege. It's the responsibility of giving oversight to the local body. Ross, I would argue like in, in the similar fashion that God wants men to be spiritual leaders in their homes— now again, that doesn't mean that that should be um, domineering at all. That's not at all, and I think that's part of the reaction to this: is is toxic masculinity has created this problem in our churches and even in our homes, and so we throw the baby out with the bathwater, and now we just say there's really no difference between man and woman, and we can see how that I think that becomes a real slippery slope. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because that's really part of the context that we're in, and when we discuss this in the 21st century is the history of toxic masculinity and some of the current emphasis on a certain kind of masculinity. I, I would look at uh, this, First Timothy, and say, well, this, this doesn't mean, does this mean that, okay, I'm, I'm listening, that I can't listen to, like, Beth Moore on the radio? Or, or does it mean, like, if I'm listening to a podcast and a woman comes on and, and she's talking about Scripture and so forth, that I, I shouldn't be able to listen to that? Or that, as some churches have practiced it, that, that women are not allowed to teach anybody uh, who's, like, older than 14? No, I think that, again, using the authority role and tying this to chapter 3, it says, look, if I'm listening uh, to the radio or to some some media material, or I'm watching somebody on YouTube, that I have to discern. That person doesn't have authority in my life. But I, I can choose to listen to what they say, and I weigh it, and I say, well, that makes sense, That that's true to what the Bible says, and or I reject it. But that person doesn't have this authority role because they're not a leader in the congregation that I attend. You know, they don't have that role of saying, this is what God says to us. You know, it's just, it's, uh, it's a suggestion in a sense of what God says in a certain passage or a certain perspective, and I have to weigh that and pay attention to it. But it doesn't have that same kind of authority that the local leaders that I've put myself, you know, in fellowship with in the local church might have for me. Yeah, now, Ross, let's just do a real quick 
kind of deep dive on this passage because their pillar New Testament commentary points out three major issues that play into the exegesis of this verse. And I just want to at least tip our readers off to these issues so that they have a sense for the kind of study that has gone into and and should go into weighing these kinds of issues. The first one is the historical setting of Ephesus. And so so some egalitarians will say, okay, here's how we're going to explain this verse away, is Paul is speaking to Timothy, who's a leader in the church in Ephesus, and F- the cultural conditions in Ephesus were such that women were too aggressive, women were too authoritative, and Paul was basically trying to say that shouldn't you know, come into the church in Ephesus. Right, because remember that Ephesus was the home of the, the temple of Artemis or Diana, and this was a shrine that attracted people from all around the ancient world. The worship of this goddess figure, and it became something that was quite uh, part a big part of the economy of the community. And so, because it was a goddess figure, this elevated the role of women into sort of a spiritual authority. And and so, so the argument is that oh, that affected the church. The church was you know having women. Uh, take a role like that in the church, and they needed to be restricted. And so the argument would be that, well, that was Ephesus, not America today or the world today. And so there was this particular need in Ephesus at that time with that setting to create restrictions. So those restrictions don't apply, you know, in every situation, every every um, community. That's the argument. Now, Again, I would say that, well, he doesn't just root it there, but he roots it in the order of creation. That's how I know that it's more uh, general than just one specific situation. Okay, the the second major issue then is just this word, and the Greek word is authenteo, that to assume authority over, to take have authority over. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. And so the the question is, what what did that mean? And and there are two, at least a couple of ways to interpret the word authenteo. And one is a little bit more like a pejorative sense. It's like the negative, like, I don't let women have abusive authority over, take abusive authority over men, is how some might say that you know that it, maybe an egalitarian would say that's what they're talking about, kind of to go along with that Artemis cult, right? That that these women who who took too much authority, kind of like this feminist, you know, authority over men, that's what they're talking about. And and the other the other way to look at it is just just authority in general, like the non pejorative sense of authority, right? And that you know that's a, a call that a person has to make by weighing the evidence, the use of that word in ancient settings and in the biblical setting, and uh, c- in considering, you know, what's, the, what's the, the semantic range of that particular word? And maybe in some settings, it, it is just a general authority that's, that's basically, this is, it means to lead other people or to, or to have, have the final say. And so it, it's a real question about whether or not that word can be construed as an abusive type authority. I mean, I, he doesn't say he doesn't want men to have not have abusive authority over mm. o- over other people. So I would suggest that in again and again, I'm really weighing 
for uh, chapter three into this whole argument mm-hmm. in that context is the context of Paul, of Timothy's whole argument is that you know he talks about a particular kind of authority there, like the authority of a parent over a family and so forth. And so that to me helps to set up what he means by the use of the word authority here in chapter two. Now, the third major exegetical issue is the grammatical construction. So the word or, right? That, And this is the one that's maybe most interesting to me, as he says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. And one of the questions that I think churches that we've had to wrestle with, and I'm sure many, many pastors and leaders over the centuries have had to wrestle with this, is, is this talking about one thing or is this talking about two things, right? So how the the approach that we have taken is that this is really talking more about, about a, authority than it is about necessarily teaching in the local congregation. Right, and it's how, what's the linkage between these two? Is it saying that, that teaching, any kind of teaching at all, has this kind of authority, this spiritual authority, or, or not? And so again, um, the way I look at this is in terms of chapter 3, because he's talking about the certain office that is to be able to teach. So I don't think it's, it's, it's prohibiting women from ever teaching, ever, but I think it's drawing a line for teaching within the context of that overseer or pastor role. And so honestly, I don't have a problem with women teaching in the pulpit. No, it doesn't happen at the church where we're at. Um, because we're we're cautious, uh, careful about this. But um, if a woman is teaching and she's under the authority of those overseers, and she's got a, a gift, then then I think you know she should have that role. But others would say, well, the authority extends to, you know, the pulpit presence, the pulpit message, and so I could see it there. So the the, the linkage question, I think, has to be again resolved in light of bigger context. Yeah, one more issue I think it's important to, I know we're diving into the weeds on some of this. We're Again, for our listeners, we're just trying to help you to understand how to approach this, because I think the, the mistake would be, and especially I want to say this to our young listeners, the mistake would be to say, I don't like this verse. I'm just going to throw it out. <laughs> you can't do that. that. That right there is the slippery slope. I think when we just start picking and choosing what we want to apply in our churches and in our lives, that's when we take a low view of Scripture, and that is that slippery slope where we just, anything goes in our churches. You have to be willing to deal with this. You have to be, because again, you're going to stand, I think, Ross, especially the leaders in our churches, and this is true of Saddleback, this is true of the Southern Baptist Convention, we're going to stand before God and give this is, I think, what it means to have spiritual authority in your churches and in your homes, is you're going to have to give account for how you led the flock. And that's why I think it, it is a huge responsibility. It's not just a privilege. It's not just who gets to wear the robe, who gets to have the mic. It's really about, you know, when I think about authority, it's, it's in Eve, Paul even appeals to this Adam and Eve situation. You know, Eve, Eve was tempted, well, so was Adam, Eve was tempted, and 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 then Eve convinced Adam. To me, I think that's a picture of authority gone wrong, that Adam didn't say, wait a second, that Adam didn't say no, that Adam didn't exercise spiritual authority even in that first situation in Genesis. And who did God come to 
to question. He came to Adam. He didn't come to Eve. He, he said, what happened here, Adam? And to me, I think that's another good picture of what we're talking about. It's about being answerable to God for what's going on in our marriages, what's going on in our family, what's going on in our churches. So to me, it's a spiritual authority is a weighty thing. It's not, a, it's not just this privilege. It's a very, very weighty thing. And that's how I view it, at least. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point to keep that in context, to make sure that we're not talking about, you know, what rights people have. Um, that's really not the issue at all. We're talking about really what responsibilities do people have. Yeah, one other thing before we move on, and, and it's that that it's it's important for us not to read verses like First Timothy two eleven with just modern ears and eyes, because the bigger thing here in the context of all of this, the bigger thing here is that women could learn. The bigger thing here is that women were expected to be disciples in a culture where women were second-rate citizens and they weren't, they actually didn't have rights to education and things like that, like we do today. Ross, is it fair to say that the the kind of the more shocking thing in these passages to the the readers of 2000 years ago would have been that they could learn they could be disciples and they were expected to be disciples and and they were invited to be followers of Jesus and that that Jesus's early disciples included women like that would have been really shocking in a culture 2000 years ago that's really a great point to because we don't see that from our culture today we don't understand that historical perspective and also, I feel like it's good to look at the rest of Scripture, as you point out, like, who are the followers of Jesus? What role did women play in that? And I think we look at, we look at this in terms of all of Scripture and say, what is the role of women? And we're going to talk about, in a moment, about you know, the equality, spiritual equality of men and women. But, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, um, women are, are assumed that they're going to participate they're going to be have a vocal role. They're going to speak up and participate in the conversation of the congregation as they grapple with God's word and so forth. And so this is um, this is not a, an unqualified restriction here in First Timothy chapter two. It has to be looked at in light of the bigger picture. Okay, so that brings us to one more passage that I think it's so important for us to include in this conversation. You know, we've talked about. 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1, even as you mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11. I, I encourage our listeners to go look those up, study. If you're really wrestling with this, and I hope you are, study those verses. Let all of Scripture speak to this issue so that you, know, you make a good, godly, well-informed decision. One other verse that you need to throw into the mix is Galatians chapter 3, Verses 26 to 28. Let me read this, Ross, and then I want you to help us to understand how an egalitarian uses this passage and how a complementarian uses this passage. Here it is, Galatians 3, 26 to 28. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So this is the passage, this is kind of the leading passage for an egalitarian. This is the passage that sort of trumps and informs all other passages that we've been reading so far. 
Right. And so I think it's important to understand what he's really saying there. If you look closely, he's saying there's no distinction in different people's relationship with Jesus, or no distinction between different kinds of people and their standing uh, before Jesus. So he says people from every social group can be children of God through their faith in Christ, every ethnic identity. So he talks about Jews and Gentiles, different ethnic identities. He talks about social position, the slave and the free. There's no distinction based on your social position, uh, whether or not you belong to Jesus or you're, or you can be considered a child of Jesus. Or he says on your gender, male or female, he says. Now, the thing is, is though he's not talking about roles or activity within the life of the church. He's talking about really uh, this is limited to our standing as children of God. And so the positive thing here is that men are fully children of God through faith in Jesus. Women are fully children of God through faith in Jesus. And I think in the past, and maybe before the 18th century or whatever, women were seen as really being spiritually inferior and that a woman could not have salvation without the role of a man in her life. And this is, says, no, that's, that's crazy because men and women are equal before Jesus. Just as Jew and Gentile, slave and free, economic, gender, all the rest. But I think then people who are egalitarian will take this and say that, well, gender doesn't matter anymore with respect to what your role is or what your position is in the life of the church. I I think that takes this uh, question a little bit too far, but we want to make sure that we give full credence to this basic idea that men and women are equal before Jesus. Men and women have the same standing before Jesus, and we celebrate that. So you gave a really a complementarian perspective on this passage, that this is talking about spiritual equality. This is, this is not talking about equality with roles in the local church. This is not talking about equal access to authority in the church. But, you know, maybe I don't know if you can defend this, so how would an egalitarian, an egalitarian, what would they say about this passage? Well, I think they would look, they would say, okay, this gives us a clue, but then they would look at other passages of Scripture that suggest women having a role. So, for example, in uh, Romans chapter 16, Paul talks about a whole bunch of people that were supportive of him, and he gives greeting to them and so forth, and then there, there are women that are listed in that in that passage with, apparently they have significant roles. There's some debate about the meaning of words and so forth, but apparently there's women who have significant roles that are listed in Romans chapter 16. Or in the Old Testament, you look at, say, the judges. There were women who were made to be judges or deliverers who had leadership, had political leadership in the life of Israel from time to time. It wasn't the norm, but it wasn't uh, excluded at all. So I think that that egalitarians will look at this bigger context of saying, hey, there's these women who had an important role, whereas complementarians would look at a bigger context and say, yeah, well, well, this isn't the only place where it talks about the relationship between men and women, and there's some, there's some limitations that are expressed in other parts of Scripture. I think it's possible to you know, understand all of that data and make it consistent, um, but I think that the egalitarian will probably elevate the parts of Scripture that talk about women's leadership and the 
complementarians would elevate the parts of Scripture that talk about, you know, male leadership. So, Ross, let's finish with this, because, you know, the context for this whole episode is really what's been going on in the SBC with Saddleback and other churches, and I'm sure there's going to be more churches in the news on this and, and more controversy over this. What would you say, Ross, to the person who's listening, who's wrestling with this, and they go to a church that has women pastors? What What would your encouragement be to that person? Like, is is this worth leaving a church over? Kind of like how the SBC had to draw a hard line with Saddleback. You know, how should an individual think about this in the context of their worship choices? Yeah, I, I think it's an important issue. I, I think a person should really think carefully about uh, what their what their role would be and what this means, because we, we want to be faithful as a church, you want to be faithful to what Scripture says. And so you have to say, well, look, look, are we being faithful to everything the Bible says about the life of the church? Now, there's certainly, every church has issues where we're not being 100% faithful to what God wants. Maybe we're not doing evangelism, or maybe our, our internal relationships have strife in them or whatever. And so, yeah, we'd have to, we'd have to be careful to weigh that and to pick and choose. But in, in a sense, to me, this... This is such a pivotal issue because of the person in leadership, we're, we're setting the direction for the life of the church for time to come. And it's going to shape the course of the, the church's destiny and legacy uh, uh, for time to come. And I, I want to I be faithful. I want to do it the way God says to do it. In other areas, yeah, let's correct that. And let's make sure those other areas are, that, we're, that we're growing up and we're and we're putting it into practice, but you don't want to say that this one is ex- the exception to all to all of the considerations about following Scripture. Well, that's what the Bible says about women pastors, and if you want to have this conversation, dig in a little bit deeper, maybe with your family or with a small group at church or with a, someone that you're mentoring, or even just as a leadership team in your church, you can have this conversation. We'll include some discussion questions, notes, links, everything we've been talking about, scripture verses. You can find all of it online at PursueGod.org. Hey, listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we want to make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org forward slash donate.